0: Um, All right, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 22, verses uh, 15, and a few verses after that, so if you follow along with me, we will read it and then see what God's Word has to say. I wanted to say real briefly, um, this is a difficult passage, and uh, it's it's made extra difficult, I think, because it's so familiar. And so when you read this passage, when I read this passage, you kind of go in with some Um, maybe some assumptions about what it's going to be about and not to say that everyone's gotten it wrong and I've gotten it right I'm just telling you it's difficult and I think that we have to be honest sometimes even as pastors to say this stuff's you know sometimes difficult to understand fully and so I'm coming to you as a brother in Christ and as a pastor who has um, gotten to process it longer maybe than you've gotten to Uh, you will today but uh, there's much more to learn that I'm going to share with you, but uh, it's it's good. So I hope that we learn to wrestle with Scriptures, even the difficult ones. And when all is said, done, go. I don't know. Some of that's a mystery, and uh, be okay with that. So Matthew chapter 22, verse 15, and this is what God's Word says. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Him, Jesus, in His talk. And they sent their disciples to Him, along with the Herodians, saying... Teacher, we know that you are true, and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us, then, what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and went away. This is God's Word. Let me pray so I don't mess it up. Father God, we thank You for Your Word. We are grateful that You, a great, generous, gracious, and good God, infinite in all ways, transcended down to us to give us Your Word, and so that Your will and Your ways and Your character are not... A mystery to us you have revealed much to us and there is that which you've left a mystery so I pray today though Holy Spirit you will reveal to us the things that that you have revealed that you will teach us what we need to learn that you will lift the veil from all of our hearts and minds and comfort those of us who need comfort and convict those of us who need conviction and lead us all to the cross where we find true meaning and true hope and true joy This in the name of Jesus we pray amen now Jesus is in the last week of his life in this narrative in Matthew. And so this is uh, you know, six or seven chapters of that last week. We saw, uh, beginning in chapter uh, 21, that he spends, and really into 22, the first part of uh, this last week of his life confronting the religious leaders very overtly. He begins by cleansing the temple and overturning tables in a very revolutionary way. Uh, He continues uh, from there to spend his days in that same temple teaching very directly, very, again, uh, offensively if you're one of the Jewish leaders. And then, uh, by the time he's done, he will have ended by predicting the destruction of the temple in which he cleansed and is teaching in. And so, more than angry about his popularity, um, the religious leaders uh, of this time are privately beginning to plan his murder. And we see as the chapters unfold, they uh, go beyond just planning in the mind. They start taking steps to actually try and, and kill Jesus or perhaps kill his reputation. And so they're hoping to leverage some of the revolutionary talk that he has, uh, particularly some of the rhetoric he has, so that they can include Rome. And if they can get Rome involved, because they really have no authority to kill anybody but Rome does, and so if they can get Rome involved, then uh, it'll be easier to uh, ultimately uh, destroy Jesus. Now the crowds, when they, Jesus first arrived, they expected the king, because they declared him to be king, to walk probably directly into uh, Pontius Pilate's palace and take over and say, I'm in charge, take the throne and start ruling, kick out Rome. Jesus didn't do that. He went directly to the temple, as I said, and he has spent all of his time confronting uh, the religious leaders uh, of the day. And he hasn't spoken a word about Rome until now. And he only speaks it because he is asked, asked a very direct question. And what we find is, uh, and you probably agree with this, that there are few, if any, uh, topics that generate as as much active antagonism and uh, critical... Of rhetoric and and relational division and and explosions on Twitter than religion and politics. Um, these are two topics that produce all kinds of emotion in us and I think that we should ask why and hopefully I have an answer. I think that these two topics produce so much emotion in us very easily without even trying Because these two things, religion and politics, not Christianity and politics, religion and politics, are two things that we easily idolize. Very tempting for us to idolize. Reformer John Calvin um, has said, described our hearts as idol factories. And being creatures of worship, designed and built to worship, we are, as a people, always seeking very naturally something to save us, something to give us meaning, something to give us security, something to give us hope. And religion and politics are two very popular functional saviors. So what you have in this story is you have the religious Pharisees and you have the political Herodians confronting Jesus together. The Pharisees, just by way of reminder, were the religious leaders who actually came from among the people. They were kind of common, uh, probably businessmen. They were uh, representing the people. They were of the people. So they were very popular with the people. They were very conservative, very fundamentalist. And even if they were politically oriented, like they did dabble in politics, uh, they were primarily opposed to Jesus for religious reasons. They were incredibly hypercritical, like not following the rules, very moral, this is God's law, we've seen this. And they were incredibly hypocritical because the very things they condemned others for not doing, they didn't do themselves. And so you have a very interesting group of of religious Pharisees that are very influential with the people. And then you have this group called the Herodians. And the Herodians were uh, political leaders who were part of the reigning establishment, namely Herod, King Herod's uh, kingdom. And his kingdom, he he is a servant of Rome, but he's still installed as a king. And even if the Herodians were religiously oriented, where they did talk about and dabble with religion, primarily they were politically opposed to Jesus. And they were very much devoted to increasing the influence of Herod's family with Rome. These guys were uh, not conservative, very liberal, very morally and ethically corrupt. If you read anything about Herod or his sons, um, you will see that um, Herod Antipas is the, the man at this point. They're incredibly evil, man who killed John the Baptist and, and uh, just uh, murdered all kinds of people, built all kinds of things for his own glory. So these are the people that are represented by the Herodians. Now what we see is that Jesus unlike anyone else, possesses the power to bring the religious and the political two groups who are typically opposed together, unify them in a shared, combined effort to kill Him. And in truth, like cowards, which both the Pharisees and the Herodians are, they don't confront Jesus directly. They send their minions, their disciples, to pretend to be disciples of Jesus to pretend to be sincere. And so they're following along around Jesus, listening to Him very carefully, listening to Him teach, hoping to catch Him either religiously or politically or both. And so in order to throw off any suspicion, they begin, right before they ask Him a question, to give Him a really nice compliment. And in giving their compliment to Him, trying to set Him up, Kind of like Mary Poppins, a little bit of sugar with the medicine, right? Try to warm him up. The description they give Jesus of himself foreshadows his response. And so this is kind of, um, they're actually pretty accurate about their description and, and their perspective of Jesus. They basically say, well, you're true, you teach from God, and you don't care about appearances, which is pretty much Jesus. Jesus speaks that which is truth. He speaks God's truth, and he typically offends somebody. Okay, somebody doesn't like him, and my guess is that's likely how the sermon's going to go. Okay, because I'm just going to share with you what Jesus says, and there's people in here. We're going to talk about politics, and it's oh my gosh, and there're going to be people leave or think you didn't say enough, or you said too much, or you shouldn't talk about this in church. And I'm going to tell you right now. I don't care because I preach for the audience of one. And I'm preaching and accountable to what I teach before God. And so I am required and responsible to equip you for ministry. So I'm not going to tell you who to vote for or what to vote for, but equip you to engage, hopefully, in this thing called politics. But let's set the stage so we understand what's going on, because it can be confusing as to what they're actually asking. It seems like a simple question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's the question they ask him. Now, taxes were a, a very hot-button issue, which things have not changed, right? Today, taxes are still very much a controversial issue to bring up. One a Jewish source that I was studying noted that during a 300-year period of time, so take about, I don't know, 150 years before Jesus and 150 years after Jesus. So in that 300-year period period amount of time, there were no less than 62 rebellions, big and small, uh, revolts by the Jews, and nearly every one of those rebellions started over the issue of taxes. 61 of those 62 rebellions started over the issues of taxes in the region of? Galilee and so you can imagine what they're thinking Oh Jesus the Galilean is not gonna like taxes right cuz he is from Galilee they're the ones always revolting and so they come to him expecting to elicit some kind of reaction from him they're trying to to trap him and they're really seeking an answer or not really seeking an answer as much as trying to force him to either Declare revolution against Rome or compromise with Rome. Now, the people of this time are heavily taxed. It is uh, oppressive to live uh, under the Roman government. There's probably a dozen taxes. And so if Jesus answers, yes, just simple answer, yes, you should pay your taxes. He can expect they hope, his popularity with this overburdened populace would just go away. They'd be like, what? You think we should pay taxes? We're not following you. Because it was a really major issue. But if Jesus answers no, no, you shouldn't pay your taxes, then they will be able to, particularly the Herodians, accuse him of sedition and bring him before uh, Roman courts and ultimately have him probably executed. So either way, doesn't matter what he answers, yes or no, trying to trap him, the Roman people will either kill him or the people following him will reject him. So either he will be killed literally or his reputation will be killed either way. They're, They're happy with either one. And so they think they have him no matter what he answers. And what we see is that Jesus gives us a third way. He always does. He never appeases either side. In fact, when we ask Jesus questions or we see Jesus asked questions, he usually responds with a question in ways that we never expect him to, and they typically lead us to the right answer, which is ne- usually not the answer we thought. We see in, in from chapter 21 to 22, he is confronted by the chief elders, uh, a chief priests, and the elders. He's confronted here by the Pharisees uh, and the Herodians. We'll see next week he is confronted by the Sadducees, week after that, he is confronted by a lawyer or a scribe. And each one asks a question. And every time, Jesus responds with a question. In this case, um, Jesus says, give me a coin. Give me a coin for the tax. It's a denarius. And he holds up the coin, and he asks a question. Whose likeness and inscription is this? And most likely, uh, the coins up there represent one of them as denarius. I think it's the one that's closest to the crown. But he holds it up and says, whose likeness is, is this? An inscription is this. There's a likeness and an inscription. Now, there are over a dozen or so taxes that Rome probably applied at this point. Not everyone had to pay every single tax. But there was one tax that everyone had to pay. It was the poll tax or the head tax or like a census tax. And you had to pay it annually with a denarius. That was what you paid with. And on one side of this denarius was uh, a picture of uh, Caesar's mom Livia and she was recognized as kind of a priestess And on the other side was Caesar's image and around Caesar's image was uh, a particular inscription now for obvious reasons using this coin like having to pay this coin annually was offensive in itself because it just reminded the Jews that they were under the oppression of Rome like okay here you go we are a subjugated people We're in our own city that God gave us and we are basically enslaved and under rule. So that was offensive to them. But what was even worse is that, as I said, along with Caesar's image, there were certain words printed and this is what the words were. Tiberius Caesar, worshipful son of divine Augustus. Okay, Tiberius Caesar... Worshipful son of divine Augustus. So if you think about that, okay, what was printed on it? Basically, the coin declared Caesar as God to be worshipped. That's what it was. This is the coin, God to be worshipped, okay? Now, beyond offensive, it was actually somewhat, or the Jews considered it sinful to use this coin, particularly because the Ten Commandments say, do not make for yourself a graven image. And they went further to say, you even get in contact and touch a graven image, that is dishonoring to God. So they couldn't even handle it, which is the reason why Jesus calls them hypocrites, because you notice Jesus doesn't have a coin, and he knew he held this, and he's like, give me the coin, and then they handle the coin that they think is you know, sinful to do, which, you're like you hypocrites, you don't even know what you're doing. So the reality is, in AD 6, I believe it was, about the time Jesus was born, give or take, he wasn't born at zero, somewhere in there, there was a revolt actually in um, Judea, and it was very violent. And it, they rose uh, against the Jews, rose against the Romans about these particular coins, using them for this particular reason. They're like, We are not going to worship you. Well, a ton of them got slaughtered, and they're like, Okay, I guess we'll use them. So that's the situation that they're in right now. So, in other words, when these guys come to Jesus with this question, is it lawful? They're not asking if are they required by the state to pay their taxes? The answer to that is yeah. They're legally required to pay their taxes. What is actually being asked is that, is it righteous? Is it right before God to pay taxes that are supporting not only false worship, but a pagan government that propagates immorality and attempts to actually elicit cult worship for its leaders? Do we have to pay taxes in? Is it right before God to do that? So, Jesus doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He doesn't, you know, trip the trap. He holds the coin up and he says, render or give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Okay, what did he just say? Well, on a very simple level, uh, Jesus tells them to give Caesar his money. And in doing so, Jesus declares that it's actually wrong to withhold honor to the state, even a pagan one. They go, are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Peter, writing um, in the first century to uh, those who were being persecuted, some physically, some materially, in his first epistle, writes to those who have family or... um, close friends who have been persecuted and killed by Nero he tells them to honor the Emperor so you go Wow okay so he says pay Caesar his money that's not all he says he also declares that at the same time you are to give God what is his namely like the coin that which possesses his image and his likeness. Okay? What is the only thing in the Bible, Genesis chapter 2, that says possesses his image and his likeness? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And so ultimately, what God is saying is that we're to give, or Jesus says, we're to give God our lives. We're to give God's ultimately our our worship, our hearts. So we are to honor the emperor as we honor God. Now, it would have been easier if Jesus simply said, reject Rome or do as Romans do. That would have been easier. In fact, what you have there are the religious and the irreligious, right? Let's make all the rules or let's have no rules. We always are extremes of people. It would have been easier if he had said one of those two things. Instead, Jesus says, no, we actually need to do both. Which is why Christianity actually is much more, quote, difficult than the legalist would have you think, or those who are totally liberal, not politically speaking, but saying there's no rules at all. See, when you actually live the gospel, when you actually ask, how do I engage culture, how do I participate in culture in the way that's honoring to God, you actually have to do a lot more discernment, a lot more prayer, a lot more discussion, a lot more study, You begin to ask questions as opposed to make lists or have no list whatsoever. And so in this case, he says, we are to do both. We are to live in the world and not like the world. Not live in the world and hide out in our Christian bomb shelter. We are to live in the world and not be like the world. And we really struggle doing that. We either say, we want nothing to do with the world, or I want everything to do with the world, right? That's our struggle. We are if nothing else, to live like this. And I'm not telling you how to do this exactly, but this is what Jesus says. We are to live in one kingdom and be governed by another. We are to live fully in one kingdom, enjoy that kingdom, bless that kingdom, participate in that kingdom, and yet be governed by a kingdom outside of this one. The mistake that Christians make, and I mean us, not just you, but I myself as well, is that when the kingdom of the world collides with the kingdom of God, when the two realms seem to clash over stuff, like, oh, I don't know, definitions of marriage, things like that. What is a life? When they begin to clash, we struggle how to navigate that and how we honor as we're called to and how we glorify God. How do we do that at the same time? And I think this is no more evident than how we engage with politics. This is like where you can just see it played out. And in politics, what we either do, and this is, this goes for anything in culture, really. We either demonize it, we idolize it, when God calls us to evangelize through it, and do neither one of those. So I want to talk about those three. Demonize, idolize, and evangelize. And I love how it sounds, and it will be memorable, and you'll go forward with it, right? To begin with, let's talk about demonizing politics. And I would say that you're somewhere in there. I'll give you a hint. You're probably not unevangelized, though you try to be there. Right? You're probably on idolize or demonized, one or the other. Some of us demonize politics. And you could say demonize alcohol. You could say demonize uh, movies. I don't know, anything in culture, right? Some of us demonize politics. There are many Christians who believe that all taxes, all voting, all government is completely corrupt and evil. Okay, This is not an uncommon belief, although it comes out in different colors or flavors. They believe, whether they say it or not, that every election is probably rigged, every tax is sinful, and every leader is satanic. Leaders of this view end up demonizing politics, and they typically advocate... No participation. You just, what's the point? And they often declare, as church leaders do. So I won't tell you the name of this guy who does this, but he's a very well-known preacher in California. We'll leave it there. Written lots of books. Has a really great study Bible. We'll leave it there. And he says this: God does not call the church to influence the culture by promoting legislation. So God does not call the church to influence the culture by promoting legislation. Love the guy, disagree with him. See, the Christian abstainer, will call him, the person that says, I don't want nothing to do with it, believes wrongly that they have no power. They have very little power to affect change in any way. Or that any power they may be afforded is lost in the evil corruption of the state. It's not, it doesn't matter. They believe that their vote is meaningless and that they're living on this planet is at best a good example for others around them that probably has very little impact, but they hope it does. Their lives may be full of good Christian work, however you want to define that, but those works typically don't extend into what we'll call institutional stuff, secular stuff, worlds like politics. And so loving their neighbor stops well short of the ballot box. Okay, I say that purposefully. Because that's actually what we're talking about. What is actually loving to my neighbor, believer or not? Now, theologically, it's interesting to think about. We understand idolizing something, we'll get there. But when you demonize something, I really believe what you're actually doing is making that into a God. Now, it's a false God, mind you, but it's a very powerful God. Maybe so powerful that you believe God doesn't have enough power to actually overcome it or control it. So you approach it or you relate to it as if it's this powerful thing that's maybe more powerful than God. You're still demonizing. It's evil, but it's a really powerful evil. Now, biblically, get ready for the shock. All governments are instituted by God. Good or bad. Which makes us really uncomfortable when we think about some of the bad governments. Now, Let's put this a little bit in context. There's no such thing as a good government. Okay, right? Just as there's no such thing as a good person. Now, there's people that are a little bit better than others in our estimation, but they're all bad. Just different flavors of bad, colors of bad. All governments are evil, right? We get irritated when we see God hardening the heart of Pharaoh as if there's any such thing as a soft heart apart from God. They're all hard hearts. Okay, hope we get that. So, when I say God institutes good and bad governments, that's from our perspective, but you understand, hopefully, what I mean. Romans 13 is very clear: says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Okay? For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Not have been allowed, instituted by God. What that means is that God is powerful enough to be glorified, even through what we consider horrible pagan governments. Now, it's okay if you don't believe me. I believe the Bible. The Old Testament is really clear how God has used historically governments that did not love him, did not worship him, in fact, hated his people pretty clearly. Here's a few examples um, how God used corrupt governments as a tool To bring about his redemptive plan. Uh, First and foremost, um, Moses. Right? Or even before that, Joseph in Egypt, prior to Moses. Right? God uses Egypt, this evil, pagan, uh, polytheistic, corrupt, if you will, in the eyes of God, government. And Joseph comes up through that and ends up saving his entire family. Of which they come down there, God brings through the murder and slaughter of innocent children, Moses comes up, a Hebrew child, to be the man who leads the redemption of his people out of slavery. You've got uh, guys like uh, Daniel in Babylon. You've got Ezra in Persia, where God moves in the heart of a Persian pagan king who does not love him, nor ever does, to be moved to rebuild God's city and God's temple and to pay for it, right? God does that. You have, obviously, uh, Esther in Persia as well. So you have all these stories that basically show how God used pagan governments to glorify God. And yet when you demonize a government, you say it's just so corrupt. Corrupt beyond God's ability to control and sovereignly reign and bring redemption? Like that corrupt? Corrupt to the point where it's more powerful than God? That seems pretty difficult to believe the truth is we end up excusing our lack of participation um, even if we kind of believe God's in control but we end up not doing anything in fact you can even go too far with God's control and say why well, if if God's really in control then I have no responsibility and the problem is if you play that out consistently, you start saying stuff like, I don't need to tell people the gospel because their eyes are veiled. Or I don't need to pray because God already knows what I need. Or I don't need to vote because you know godly laws won't even come to pass and if they do, people won't follow them anyway. Even if we believe that you can't legislate morality, I think it's important to agree with Pastor Martin Luther King Jr. who said... Even though morality cannot be legislated, behavior can be regulated. And while the law cannot change the heart, it can certainly restrain the heartless. The truth is, even though good laws don't guarantee good people, good laws punish bad people. Now, I think in this passage where God says, Honor the emperor and and honor God, give him your life, and this follows. In many ways, Jesus is calling us to fulfill what is few responsibilities. One's our civic responsibility, which is, again, part of our spiritual responsibility. My contention is that everything is spiritual, including this particular act. And the truth is, we have a civic responsibility, and unlike many governments in this world, we have given the privilege to vote. What that really means is that we share in the ruling of this nation. And if we are sharing in the ruling of this nation, that means that we are leaders. And the Bible says that leaders are instituted by God and held accountable to God for their leadership. And so our failure to participate in government through our vote is a failure to honor God who has placed you in that position to actually lead. Oh, that changes things a little bit. I thought it was just those leaders I'm supposed to pray for. Actually, you're one of those leaders. They may have more influence, but you have influence on them. We also have a stewardship responsibility. Well, what do you mean by that? Well, a significant amount of our money, unlike Rome, is taken and we have ability to influence how that's spent. The truth is we have money, whether it be through you own property or you pay taxes when you buy a hamburger or whatever, that money goes to our government and they fund certain things as a government. Now, we can't dictate everything that they spend money on, but we can influence. We can't have a voice on where that money is spent. And we can't demonize it. It doesn't matter. We don't make decisions to do what is right based off of the outcome. I'll do what's right if this follows. Right? That doesn't the way we we do what's right regardless of what the outcome will be. We pray to God that the outcome is something that aligns with God and gives Him glory. But even if it doesn't, our active participation glorifies God. You may not choose to march. You may not choose to protest or campaign for a particular issue, but we should all choose to vote especially when God provides an opportunity for us to affect the kingdom values of our community. That is actually a way in which we love our neighbor. If we truly believe that God's kingdom values are aligned with what is most glorifying and most joyful, if we actually believe that God's designs and God's ways are what bring the greatest health and the greatest joy, then we should jump at the opportunity to align our community with that because it's loving to our community, whether they believe that or not. Many Christians, and I won't ask for hands, are not even registered to vote. Right? But my guess that if a law was passed today that banned Bibles, you would have a swell of registrations hey, on the ballot next week, we're going to ban Bibles in the state of Washington. I'm not registered. We're not banning the Bible. All right? The truth is, Christian, a Christian abstaining from participation in something like politics and culture fails to recognize that they have a kingdom responsibility not only to live that out, but to proclaim God's kingdom and to uphold God's values in all areas of our life we would never say that like hey live kingdom values but when you get to work just kind of do as Romans do right we would say no we are to honor our employer and we're to honor God as we do that when they collide we're gonna have to do some discernment on how to figure that out we don't just go now forget it it's not gonna be a Christian at work really So, some of us demonize. Now, some of us on the other side, and we idolize politics or government or. Many don't believe that, but it doesn't take much but a brief look at Facebook posts to reveal how much Christians worship government and view it as a savior. Just look at what people get super upset about, what they get really excited about. Sometimes it's Jesus a lot of times it's the current administration or lack thereof, certain things that have happened in society. And I'm not saying you should not get emotional about that things, but when you see something, it's become like, man, when you ever watch something, you're like, that seems like that's kind of too important to that person. You're beginning to see probably the beginnings of idolatry. Essentially, what happens is this. Here's what's happening in the heart of people that idolize anything like this is that they believe that the main problem in the world is something other than sin. And when you begin to believe that the main problem in the world is something other than sin, then you begin to believe that the solution is something other than God. That you believe the problem is on the outside, not the inside. And those who idolize politics and make too much about it believe that the solution to the obvious moral decline of our culture is to make sure we have solid leaders in place with a solid Christian agenda in office. Now, I'm not suggesting that's a bad thing, but when it becomes too important, it becomes a bad thing. Many well-meaning Christian leaders believe that if you can change laws, you'll in some way change behaviors. Now, you may actually change behavior. I can unload law on my kids, and they will stop their behavior, right? I can throw down punishments. But to believe that punishments and rules are going to change their hearts, it's not going to happen. What they fear, ultimately, those who idolize it, is that if we can't change the laws, if we don't change the laws, then, then the world is going to just go rampant with sinfulness. Like it's not already there. They believe that good laws will result in good people And so they create organizations and do things to try and redeem society through politics. Theologically, I believe that those who hold this view just honestly think they have too much power. Those who believe that they um, need to throw everything they can in there really uh, don't trust that God is in control. They do not believe that, that Jesus is reigning as a king. They don't believe that he's authoritative. And we need to help him out by making sure we have a Christian in the White House. I'm obviously generalizing to being extreme. Political idolatry, again, is when you have failed to believe or you believe that bad legislation is the problem when, in fact, it's actually sin. The truth is, you could have the best, most godly laws there are. And it won't necessarily change anything. I know as a parent, and if you're a parent, you understand this, especially as you have the older kids. You can be tempted to believe that if you create the perfect environment, your kids will come out perfect, right? If I can just have like perfect devotions with my family, and have perfect rules and protect them, in fact, I'll just I, I won't send them to public school. I don't think you know public schools are evil, or that if you homeschool, you're thinking this, but You begin this mentality, if I can create this perfect environment, then they will come out perfect. The problem is, this is totally unbiblical. Not suggest you don't have responsibilities. But to suggest that you can have that much power is foolish. And if you don't believe me, well, you can just look at the Old Testament again, which is a great example, where you see faithful generations give birth to unfaithful generations. And unfaithful generations give birth often to faithful generations. But it's no more clear than in the um, first couple books or couple chapters of Genesis. I remember having my discussion with my wife. I I, God love her, but she just has a fear sometimes of like, oh, like if our kid does something wrong, which, yeah, my kids sin. Oh, cat's out of the bag. My kids are sinful, right? So am I. There you go. Sinful dad parenting sinful kids. There you go. Um, But like when you see, when your kid like falls into sin or is captivated at sin, you begin to go like, oh, what did I do wrong? Must have done something, like, and you start analyzing everything, like, oh, it must have been this, or it must have been this, and you freak out. And the problem is you think you have too much power, but you can go the opposite way too and think, oh, I have no power at all. So I don't know, let the kids do whatever, right? So it's like we're always going to extremes. But if you go back, I told my wife this, I said, let's just go back to the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, you had the perfect environment with the perfect parent, all right? In perfect relationship with the perfect law and what happened go read Genesis 3 you'll see right men rebel so don't get me wrong I, I want laws I love good godly laws I want a world where people are punished for their wickedness just laws where I am protected where I'm free but I don't put that much faith in those laws to change a heart or save a soul. I'm not convinced if we have perfect laws of justice that that justice is somehow not sinful now. Paul is pretty clear in talking about our salvation that it's evident that no one is justified by God, by law before God. And I think the same can be said about our culture, right? It doesn't matter what laws you have. It's not going to save a soul. It's not going to change a heart. They're good. But they're not ultimate. So the question is what do we do? We, want to, we don't want to demonize and we don't want to idolize, which happens with everything we do because our hearts are like that. They go between these extremes. Especially when you see the courts of Caesar in our world beginning to usurp and redefine things that you thought were in God's arena things like marriage, things like what actually is a life. Now, the truth is. Um, when the people do this, it's treasonous against God, but it's not new. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, voted God out of their lives when they first ate the fruit in the garden. Men, by nature, desire to govern themselves. Men, instead of accepting their role as creatures who are accountable and dependable to God, on God and to God, they try to become creators. They try to be free. They try to be independent. They try to have no authority beyond themselves. And the question remains, how do you live then in that kind of culture? How do you live in this kingdom and governed by another one at the same time? I don't want to demonize it. I don't want to idolize it. Well, I believe what we're to do is go back to what God called Adam and Eve to do initially. To be the image bearers of God to reflect His glory and evangelize through everything we do, including politics. Politics is not a separate thing of culture. Politics is part of the culture and part of the world that we are called to reflect God's glory through. There is a difference between worshiping and worshiping through something, just as there's a difference between finding glory in and giving glory to God through something. Swiss reformer John Calvin said that the task of the church is to make the invisible reign of Christ visible. The task of the church is to make the invisible reign of Christ visible. To live in this kingdom and reflect or show that we are governed by a different kingdom. And that begins in our homes and goes to our jobs and goes into everything we do including the ballot box evangelizing through politics is proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ through it's declaring that there is a God that man is sinful and that it is redeemed through Jesus our Lord and our Savior at different times proclaiming that's going to mean including warnings to people Jesus warned people repent the kingdoms at hand At times, that's going to be giving explanations as to why we live the way we do, why we have marriages the way we do, why we work the way we do. And at times, that's going to include very direct invitations to repent and believe. But every time, whether it be a warning or an explanation or an invitation, every time is an opportunity to display the greatness of God and His designs regardless, regardless of Anyone heeds the warnings, if anyone listens to the explanations, or if anyone believes. You see, we still have the responsibility, and I've said this before. So, like, as you guys come here, I, I, I preach the gospel, and I believe that if everyone, which would be odd, but everyone came in and said, All right, here comes the sermon, and he stopped listening, that God would be no less glorified in what I say. I believe the same thing about evangelism, that the primary purpose for evangelism, for preaching the good news, is not to save people. That is secondary to glorifying God. Because if it's primary, then if no one believes, I've somehow failed. But if it's primary and no one believes, God's still glorified by the declaration that Jesus Christ is Lord and he saves by grace. Still glorified. So we don't make decisions about whether we participate in something because the outcome is not what we think it should be. We do what is right, what is most glorifying, and then trusting that God is in control. Every time is an opportunity to display the greatness of God in every aspect of our life. And speaking of the church in Matthew 5, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. I preached on that, if you recall says you are the salt. Not You should be the salt of the earth. You are going to be the salt of the earth. Be who you are. Salt's a pretty amazing mineral. It, it can preserve, it can purify, and it can enrich. And in all culture, politics included, we have to discern what the moment requires. And I say that because right now, it's becoming really difficult I shouldn't say difficult. It's becoming a little costlier to be a Christian. I still don't think it's difficult. Sometimes in these days, the church is called to be a preserver of the truths of God that exist right now in the culture. Not everything in the culture is evil. There are things in the culture that bring glory to God. Things that are being challenged. Things that have been challenged. We are, as the church called to display the wisdom of God as the church, the Bible says we are the pillar of truth. As the church, we are to make that which is invisible, visible. We are to call people back to the fundamentals, the designs of God, the truth of God that comes from Scripture. We are to uphold Scripture to the glory of God, believing as we do it, it is glorifying to Him and it's what's best for everyone else. It is most loving. It is a display and a demonstration of our love for God, and it is loving to our neighbor. Now, it doesn't mean our neighbor will like it. But we have to be convinced that it's most loving, so we preserve the truths of God. We say, this is important. Sometimes the church is called to purify, which means call for change. That's when we use our salt, if you will, which is our voices, our votes, our work, whatever, To clean out that which is rotten. It is to, at times, draw a line. Take a stand. March on a government. Protest. Campaign. Whatever. It is a time to do as Peter did when he first began to preach in Acts 5 as he stood before the Jewish authorities and said, we must obey God rather than man. There will be a time, and the time is coming soon, where it will be much more difficult to be a Christian. By difficult, I mean it will be more costly. There will be a time that is coming when I will not be able to say certain things from this pulpit. I will not be able to come up and say homosexuality is a sin. That same-sex marriage is wrong. That slaughtering the unborn is wrong and sinful and a disgrace. That if I say such things, I will be threatened that the, the tax identification of a church will be threatened, that I could be thrown in prison. But what is our responsibility? Easy to say, oh, I know, my, I know what I would do. Do you? There will be a time when we have to draw a line. There will be a time when we will have to take a stand. And that is for God's glory, regardless of cost to us. We may not experience in the next 25 years death or threats to our lives for taking a stand for Christianity. But you may have death to your job, or your reputation, or your tax identification, or whatever. We're called to be salt. We're called to honor the emperor, but when those things collide and they begin to cross, we are to stand up for the Lord. At all times, we're called to enrich. And I believe this means we're called to participate in culture constantly, in all things. We don't just throw out politics. We make it more palatable. That's what salt does. It makes it tastier. If all Christians withdrew from all aspects of culture, including politics, things would just taste bad. Now, granted, some Christians don't know where to stop with the salt. Right? It's like, we need more salt! More salt! Like, whoa! Now it still tastes like nastiness, okay? But we are called in all areas of life, whether it be TV and entertainment or language or education, we're called to inject a little bit of Jesus in there. And I'm trying to equip you to do this. If you take 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says simply this, whether you eat or drink or all that you do, do all to the glory of God. You can't take certain things out of your life and go, I'm not required to glorify God in these because it's just too hard or it's too meaningless or too irrelevant. If there is a way to glorify God when you eat, there's a way to not glorify Him. So whether you eat or you drink or all you do, including you vote, you are responsible to glorify God through that. And a lack of participation in that, silence in that, is not going to bring glory to God. It's been said that our engagement in culture is a matter of receiving, rejecting, or redeeming. And that is helpful. I think, however, we can reject too much and demonize something. And I think we can receive too much and idolize something. I would argue that we can't redeem anything that all things are redeemed through Christ, and we're responsible to bring that redemption into those aspects so that we can see restoration. And what's restoration? Really, at the heart of our church, it's aligning ourselves with what God has already done. It's taking us back, if you will, restoring back to what God's designs are, aligning with his original designs and his original ways, which at times is confrontational and difficult. But as we close, I want us to understand this, that God has chosen the times and places in which we live, according to Acts 17. That we are here for a purpose. We are in the northwest part of this nation, which is very difficult sometimes to live as a Christian. This world is not our home, though. That we are to be reminded that we are aliens in a foreign land journeying through on our way to be with the Lord in His kingdom, hoping to encourage others to join us on that journey. And as we walk through the days that we have here, we are to live in a way that is distinctly different because of who we are in Jesus Christ. That we are to live and display the saving work of Jesus Christ in our hearts, it should overflow out of us. And these are not good works to earn our salvation, but they are good works that reveal the great power of grace that we've received from God. And so we are to counterculture. We are to swim against the stream so that we can show the wisdom of God and the folly of the world's wisdom. Living counterculturally is to be done with humility, out of love for God, and out of love for our neighbors. And the goal, this is the goal, that those who do not know God would seek Him and thirst for Him. That requires us to live as two things, exiles and ambassadors. This is not our home, but we have a home that we represent. We live in one kingdom, and we are governed by another. And remind ourselves that our hope is in a particular place. See, without the gospel, without the cross, redemption and change in an individual or society, it ain't going to happen. The only thing you're going to create when you have politics minus Jesus is a bunch of rules that could stop behaviors, but it's not really going to affect the heart. And some behaviors are worthy of stopping. At the same time, if you just have Jesus minus politics, then you've begun to segment your life into things that you say, this is not where God's reign is to be displayed. This is not where God's glory is to be displayed. And you actually hinder and stop in fulfilling what is our mandate from God to display His glory in all aspects of this world and all that we do. As the people of God, we are called to manifest His kingdom through our language, our food, our marriages, our work, our money, and our politics. And the truth is, if you are unwilling to bring Jesus into the voting booth, more than likely you're unwilling to bring Him into your banks, and into your bedrooms, and into your jobs, and even maybe into your homes. The Bible teaches that our hope is not in politics, but it's in responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we don't put our hope in building a perfect environment that's friendly to God's truth. But our hope is that true heart change change happens when people encounter Jesus. And when people encounter Jesus, individuals are transformed by grace. And when individuals are transformed by the gospel, guess what? families are transformed. And when families are transformed by the gospel, communities are transformed. And when communities are transformed by the gospel, governments are transformed. And sometimes that one individual in that neighborhood or that one family or that one church or community is the one place where people are saying, remember God. Remember the cross. Remember that our call is to glorify God. When... We give God our lives, which I believe is rendering under God what is His. Then we understand how we are to render everything else. And everything in our lives becomes a means through which we can worship Him. Romans 12 tells us that all of life is worship. And that includes what I've talked about today. Let's pray. Father God, we thank You for all that You have done to save us and to bring us back into Your family. And I pray You'll remind us of something today, Lord, that we have a mission while we're here that You didn't take us home, You sent us back into the world to do something. And I believe that something is to display Your glory, to stand for Your truth to show people not just the love and mercy of You, Father, but also Your justice. I pray that You will help us to do that. Lord, we are apt to demonize all kinds of things and to idolize all kinds of things. And I believe it's all an effort for us to avoid living for You in a kingdom that's not our home, looking forward to the kingdom that is our home. Help us, Lord, to live in ways that honor You, in ways that are loving to our neighbors, in ways that, Father, um, display your glory and make your invisible reign known. And help us to do it with the right amount of salt. I confess, Father, that we uh, get very zealous at times and people get offended at us and not your truth. But also, Father, we use as an excuse sometimes to not sprinkle any salt. So help us to understand how to honor the emperor as we honor you how to live in this kingdom as we live for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. If you'd stand, we're going to take communion. This is... um